Want to learn how to be a master of business without going back to school? Listen to the Planet Money MBA. No suits, no PowerPoints, just the secrets of business school delivered straight to your ears. Every Wednesday till Labor Day on Planet Money from NPR. My name is James McBride. I'm the author of a book called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. James McBride's new book, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, is an American melting pot story following a community in Pottstown, Pennsylvania in the 1930s. A diverse community made up of immigrant Jews, African Americans, and even KKK members. If that description seems too basic, it's because it is. Any attempt by me to describe this book further would be lacking, so I won't even try. Instead, I just leave you with my conversation with James McBride. Now, this doesn't seem quite fair, but could you give our listeners a brief description of the book? Because I don't know how I would be able to do it. The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store is a book about a grocery store owner in um, Pottstown, Pennsylvania, a small town in Pennsylvania, who takes in a uh, deaf child and hides him from the state of Pennsylvania so that they can't put him in an insane asylum. He's a black kid and he's deaf and he's 12 years old. And her name is Chona Ludlow. And uh, that's the basic theme of the book, but the book is really about equality and about how we learn to get along despite our differences. Many characters in the novel worry about the future, and it's interesting that the novel opens in the future of its own story. It begins with a chapter set in 1972, and before moving back for the rest of the story in the 1930s, you know, many details from that first chapter only begin to make sense by the novel's end. Why was it important to give your novel the structure of an opening chapter set decades after the main events of the story? The story is bookended by a hurricane, Hurricane Agnes. You hear about it at the beginning of the book, and you hear about it at the end of the book, and then you hopefully come to the realization that this hurricane was really something that God put in place so that he could give you his word or her word, if you will, however you want to, you know, give you the word that this is God's answer to what happened and during this very tumultuous period. In other words, the forces of nature, the forces of the great spirit that rules the earth and the universe spoke during Hurricane Agnes. So that's why I bookended it with beginning with the hurricane and ending with the hurricane, because it's really not about the hurricane at all. It's about the human spirit and about what's possible when you believe in in the good and believe in justice in a real way, not in terms of slogans, but in a real deep way, deep in your heart. You know, speaking of structure, your book had such a beautifully elastic sense of voice and perspective. The chapters, they would shift to share the thoughts and experiences of many different residents of Pottstown and Chicken Hill, particularly giving us many different senses of what America means or should mean. But the narration itself is consistently this sort of omniscient third-person voice that unifies the story, even as it describes so many different people and their beliefs and lives. And I'm, I'm just curious, was that a conscious choice rather than, say, you know, different sections narrated by different characters? Yeah, because when there's judgment, there's no journey. Somebody has to take the reader from one perspective to the other, and the person who's taking the reader from one perspective to the other they can't be too subjective, you know? They can be a little bit subjective, 
but they can't really jive the reader too much. Otherwise, the reader is going to say, oh, this writer's trying to show me why I should feel guilty, or this writer's trying to show me what's wrong in the world. I don't want a writer to show me what's wrong in the world. I just want a writer to show me the world. I'll decide, since I paid $27 to spend my precious <laughs> bucks for this book, what's right and what's wrong. I just want the writer to show me, and if the writer can show me with some with a bit of humor or a bit of confidence or a bit of humility or with just a bit of humanity that I can accept, I'll accept that maybe they're, you know, maybe they have something to say. But I did feel like, you know, through that omniscient third person voice, I kept thinking about truth and, and what it really meant. For instance, the, you know, that, that family in Pottstown who believed that they were descendants who came over from the Mayflower in, in 1620, but were actually descendants of an Irish sailor who like rebranded himself as Lord Blessington and eventually sent his wife and children to America much later in 1784. So we got to learn all of this from this narrator who knew the truth. But to those descendants, you know, with so many years removed, they had their own version of the truth. So what's the benefit of showing the reader that we are not all that we may seem, whether we know it or not? Because we are the sum of our life experiences. And if our life experiences are so thin that we don't even bother to realize that maybe the storyteller is not always being honest or the storyteller is giving us a little bit of smoke and puff while they're giving us a little bit of meat, um, then, then we're the suckers. I mean, you know, we have to realize that the winners of the wars write the history. So who's to say, you know, this whole business with the Mayflower, I've always been a little bit taken with that. Like, you know, every time the queen has a hiccup, you know, we, we all just do handstands in this country. I mean, with all due respect to the queen, you know, Dominus Nomus, the great queen, blah, blah, blah. you know, I don't care. I really don't care. I mean, I, you know, I, I need gas and it costs this much, you know, I don't want to break it down to that kind of simplicity, but there's the, the history of goodness goes like this. I had a flat tire on the road one day, a man stopped to help me. It was late at night and I really appreciate what he did. Did I really care what color he was or whether he was Italian or whether his wife was Jew, I don't care. I'm glad he helped me. And now I take that small sliver and place it in my books. Take a thousand small slivers like that and place it in my books. And what you have at the end is community that works. Who cares if the man stops and he's just sick and he has his head in a turban? It doesn't matter. You know, so a lot of what we hold to be history, you know, with this whole business, I was a descendant of the Mayflower. So okay, who cares? If you, you're not helping anybody. I don't care if you're descended from King George himself. What difference does it make to me? So, you know, there's, there's a whole thing now. This whole thing, you know, you go to one, two, three or something, find your descendants. and blah, blah. Great. I mean, are you teaching a kid to read? Because if you're not, I don't care who you're descended. I used to work with a guy, very famous musician. I won't call his name. Bro, and he had this whole chart about how he was related to George Washington, a black guy. Okay, good. Good for you. <laughs> How's that helping me? I don't care. And he was cheap and he cheated a lot of people out of their money. Well, I mean, I don't think George Washington did that, you know? So whether you're related to and what your heritage is important, it's important. It's culturally important and it's it's ethnically and religiously important. Only if you are willing to help somebody and do some good. If you're not, then it doesn't matter. So uh, yeah, that was that was a point in the book where there are a couple of points in the book where I really take out my, you know, I take out my baseball bat and swing it a few times, but not a lot, you know, not a lot. But once in a while, I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> That's one of those places where I can't help myself because I, 
look, if I was a Native American, I'd see Kansas a whole different way. I'm not saying that white people in Kansas did anything wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. So don't write me about wokeness or that other bullshit. But, you know, I just see Kansas a different way. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I'd hate it. or It's just that everyone's perspective is important. And as long as you, you try to bring some honesty and perspective and goodness to your, to your idea that, you know, people are generally good. They're trying to do the right thing. So give them space to say, you know what? I made a mistake and I'm sorry. That makes things go a lot better than strutting around with your feathers out like a peacock saying I'm related to this person or that person. It, it, what difference does that make? Well, I believe these were Chona's thoughts, and she was talking about, you know, fighting about a meaningless flag that says, I'm proud to be an American, which it should have said, I'm happy to be alive, because what the difference was, one's tribe cannot be better than another tribe because they were all one tribe. And then I think even earlier when Mario was talking to Moshe, and he said to him, to you, they're Spanish, to me, they're Puerto Rican, Dominican, Panamanian, Cuban, Ecuadorian, Mexican, and he just went on and on and on. And he said, you know, a lot of different sounds mixed together. That's America. You have to know your people. So talk to me about all of these lives that landed at this crossroads of place and time. Why did you choose this particular time in American history to tell this melting pot story? Well, because these communities had to get along. They had to intersect with each other. You know, they had to go to the store together. They had to draw water from the same well. They were forced to be in the same space. And since they were forced to be in the same space, they were forced to learn about each other and they were forced to get along and they discovered that this was a better way to be and it made them into a community. Nowadays, we, we don't have to connect with each other. We can just text on our own little phones and get our own little news feed. And, and you know, it's sort of like eating your own food and then regurgitating it and then eating it again and expecting it to get the same nutrition, uh, you know, out of the same food. I mean, if you eat a bowl of cereal, Eat a bowl of Cheerios and throw it up and then eat it again. At some point, whatever little nutritious value Cheerios has, or maybe it has great nutritious value if you work with Cheerios, you know, great Cheerios, then, you know, Dominus, Kellogg's, cornflake, great. But if you have, you know, at some point you have to eat something different. You need a salad to live. And so there's nothing, you know, revolutionary about that. It's just that our sense of community has been disrupted now in part by the internet and in part by, you know, a lot of other factors and people who have, you know, sort of made us think that we're so different from each other. And these, these new people bring something that's just totally foreign to what we are. And I don't even know how to, I, I, I don't even know how to talk to people who are, who are, who surround themselves with these, the shell of protective nonsense. I, I really don't even know how to communicate with them. Now, granted, you know, if you, you know, if someone says to you, what's your pronoun? Well, you know, I don't, I personally, it doesn't hurt me at all. Whatever a person wants to call themselves, it ain't hurting me. So if that's what they want to call themselves. If they want to decide if this a woman decides she wants to be a man or a man is good for them. I mean, we're still going to sit down at the same table and eat. And if they're serving, I'm eating. That's what's what, I mean, how hard can that be? So I'm, I'm, I, you know, when I wrote this book, I wrote it with the understanding that, you know, we have these walls that we are putting between us that really, they, they prevent us from being happy. And I'm, I personally, I'm interested in being happy. So I go to that.
that's kind of where I am. And that's where the kind of the character, I mean, Chona is a happy woman. I mean, she, you know, she does a lot of stuff that's weird and wrong and uh, some of it's against Jewish law and all that, but she's happy and her happiness just covers everything she does. You know, one of the central and most compelling aspects of the novel is the way that that Jewish and black characters work together and build friendships and live in this town together as ostracized others. And I couldn't help but think of your memoir, The Color of Water, and how you interwove stories of your own upbringing as a person of color in America with stories of your mother's Orthodox Jewish upbringing. So did you find pieces of your own experience or your mother's at work in the Heaven and Earth grocery store? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the older I get, the more ridiculous the whole notion seems, though, I must say. You know, when you go to an old folks' home, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't seem pertinent anymore because people are just happy the kidneys are still wheezing and the the lungs are still pumping air. And, they, you know, a lot of this stuff it doesn't seem to matter that much. So, yeah, there were lots of things, lots of experiences that my mother either talked about or that I learned about that were helpful and useful in putting this book together. Um, but I could have just as well been writing about dinosaurs and, uh, and uh, woolly mammoths. You know, it's the same thing. We're all trying to live. And what are the common roads that we use to live? There's not that much difference between Blacks, Jews, Italians, Irish, Hindus, Muslims. There's not. If you want to find stuff that's different, I mean, you know, sure. But is there really that much of a difference between like a a Coca-Cola and a Pepsi? Really? I mean, if your life is like that, then you need to read more books. I mean, I'm I'm not criticizing because, you know, my sister would tell you there's a tremendous difference between Coke and Pepsi. It may be for her, it is. But, you know, in, t- in the game of life, in, which is a, a real, not a game, but a, a but just a short distance, are you going to waste time with that kind of hate that, you know, that kind of, you know, prejudice that burns? So, yes, there were lots of things about Orthodox Jewish life and Black American life that, that are different. But there are lots of things that are the same. And the things that are the same are easy for me to work with. The things that involve differences, I'm just not the guy to write those kinds of books. You know, we meet very few characters through their real names. Most have nicknames. Some have changed their names. And some of the new names are really memorable, like Dodo and Paper and Monkey Pants. So at one point in the novel, a character claims a name don't mean nothing, but it seems the novel is showing us differently. What do you think names mean and what do they mean for this book? Well, I just like good names, you know, <laughs> but but I'm also mindful that a name is nothing more than just a group of letters placed together. I mean, you could just as well call me, you know, sock or tennis shoe, or, you know, eyeball, Cyclops. I mean, and if you call me Cyclops enough, people would call We were just, my siblings and I were talking last night about a guy who lived across the street from us whose name was Snake. His, that wasn't his real name, but if he had a, like, he he was, his claim to fame was that after he talked to you, he would point to you like, you know, like as if you, and, and then his son did the same thing, you know, Snake and Snakes. Now, I don't know why they called the guy Snake, but, but I know that Oh, he could. He was a fixer. He could fix stuff in your house. But you had to watch out because after he fixed stuff in your house, he'd case it so he could rob it later. So <laughs> that's the golden snake. 
So some of that is, you know, based on, so the names of the characters in the book, well, they just seem natural. And also, you know, in my own life, you know, people had wild nicknames. I even had some. So they're always, they're always helpful. They're, they're, they're helpful labels. Talk to me about the number 12. Well, um, there used to be a, a, a gospel group called the Davis Sisters, and they had a song called 12 Gates to the City. And uh, three gates to the east, three gates to the west, three gates to the north, three gates to the south. There are 12 gates to the city, hallelujah. And I and uh, it just seemed like it worked, you know, at that whole business with Moses, with Moshe and Moses and the Bible. There's so much stuff in the Bible that's so useful and so... Um, I mean, whoever wrote the Bible, who you know, what, what how, however many people wrote it, um, they were tremendously creative, and these are tools that you use as a writer when you when you're putting things together. You know what what in that song works for me? You know, I am I am a lineman from what is the song for Glenn Glenn Campbell? I'm a lineman from something county. It's a- I don't know, but it, you're talking about Wichita linemen. I, I should know the words, and I don't, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that that song does more for Wichita than than hundreds of, of scholastic books that are probably a lot more important to read uh, do for Wichita. I'm a lineman from such-and-so county. I mean, he, that's how great writing starts, and that that's actually, that's great writing. I mean... Um, uh, call me Ishmael, which is the first line to um, Moby Dick. Or I was sick, sick unto the death with that great agony that by um, um, Edgar Allan Poe, the Telltale Heart. I am a lineman for the county. That's right. But that's the Wichita lineman song, and it speaks really. It it just it it tells a story, and the great lyricists do, and they do it with few words. They're like poets. They are poets. So, you know, the power of words to to create a to create to illuminate is still the most magnificent way of of taking us places, important places. It seemed like so many things happened to characters at age twelve. Was that just continuing the idea? It never it never occurred to me that um uh that 12 was the magic number. I usually, I think of 13 as the years, you know, <laughs> boys and girls, you know, girls. Are st- I mean, again, I'm not an expert about writing about females. I'm always a little nervous about that because there's, you know, there's a wide demand, there's a wide, you know, the picture is thin, but it's, the picture is small, but very wide at that point at 13. So you don't know what side of the frame the young kid or the young woman or the young teenagers on, but 13 seems more of a time. But 12 is pretty close, you know, 12 is pretty close. In the acknowledgments of this book are some really, you know, some of the most beautiful acknowledgments that I've seen. You you say that your book was intended to be an ode to Cy Friend and his work as the director of the Variety Club Camp for Handicapped Children in Worcester, Pennsylvania. But you say, like many works of fiction, it morphed into something else. Can you describe how the story morphed and what would you say it morphed into? Are there still elements of that initial plan in the story or? Yeah, sure. There's the, I mean, it morphed into this story about Moshe and his wife and the, and the kid and who ends up in a, 
in a mental institution. But the the, the main element, the, the main thing that Sai taught me and and which was taught to him by the disabled children that we tended to was this whole business of equality. Because disabled people don't waste time with the nonsense that you and I uh, bother with. You know, they're not interested in race. And I mean, you know, to some degree, yeah, some of the vestiges of race and class and religion play themselves out. But over the course of the four summers I worked with those disabled kids, those weren't the lessons they taught us. They taught us lessons about humanity and how to be grown up. And how that, you know, no matter how sick a person is, love is, no one is that sick where love doesn't count. Because those kids loved each other and they had so much fun. They taught us about fun. And they taught us about the important things in life in a real way. Um, so I, you know, I was writing the book. I, I, I wrote several chapters and they were all horrible because they were all about camp. Camp this and camp that. I was. I don't want to read about some corny camp. I don't want to read a book that says, you know, take your medicine and be happy. So I just discarded them because when I came upon Moshi as a character, he's the one that led to his wife, and then his wife Chona led us to to the kid. And when we got to the kid, then that, that was this, that, that's where I had the opportunity to show what some of these kids were like, and his his relationship, his friendship with Monkey Pants, who was probably a one of the most seminal characters in the book and probably the most difficult character I've ever had to meet on the page because Monkey Pants had, I mean, if he had to be diagnosed, he'd have what you'd call an advanced case of cerebral palsy. But I'm again, I'm not a doctor. I just play one on TV. No, I'm just not, you know, I mean, but he was, he was like many of the kids I met who was, couldn't express himself in a physical way, but beneath the outer covering he had a thousand wonderful thoughts inside that were as sophisticated and as and beautifully innate and, and intricate as any that you and I could have. And I wanted people to meet a person like him. And Dodo was perfect. They were in a perfect place to meet, even though they met in the most horrible circumstances, which was in an insane asylum, where they actually did put kids who were disabled back in those days. You know, as I read this, I laughed out loud throughout your acknowledgments made me cry and I finished it and I, I told our producers I said reading this type of book makes me want to be a better person so you know we've talked about a lot is there anything that you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked no uh, um but you know it's nice for me to I had a conversation with a farmer one time from Kansas on a plane when I was a young man I was traveling as a journalist and we really got into it, really, about race. And I still remember it, and it probably was more than 30 years ago. I mean, we really went out. We, we did not agree on much. But at the end of it, I, I liked him. He was a funny guy. He was a very funny guy. <laughs> um, and uh, I was always I was convinced when I got off the plane that I'd never changed his mind about race. He, I felt he was prejudiced as the day was long, and he felt the same about me. But I still liked him because he was funny. He was very a humorous guy and he thought I was funny. We, we, we didn't exchange addresses or anything, but I still remember the conversation. And so, you know, I feel like all my life I've been having this conversation with people who I might not necessarily agree with, but I still think are pretty good people. And that's the difference between America and Europe and Africa and Asia. And I've been to all those places. Americans are really funny people. 
you know, we eat too much, we drink too much. We do a lot of stuff that's wrong now. I mean, you know, and some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, the food industry has figured us out, man. They, they figured out that salt works. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that we will make it through this difficult time. We're, actually, we are. We just don't see it. And so the only thing I can tell people who are interested in writing or interested in making, making our place, world a better place is that when there is judgment, there is no journey. And when there's no journey, you haven't gone anywhere. You haven't really lived. So it's really important not to judge other people, even if you don't agree with them. You just you just can't judge them. That's God's business. And I don't want you telling me what God should be. I don't need nobody telling me what God. God has already spoken to me. I don't need a prophet to tell. It's real simple. Just try not to judge people. And you'll live a you'll live just you'll have a better life. You'll have a lot more fun. Well, the book is The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. James McBride, thank you so much for joining us today. All righty. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you and talk to your audience. And thank you for uh, thank you for having me. That was James McBride, author of the book The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which was published by Riverhead Books. Marginelli was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>